Hey, and welcome to PCTY Talks. I'm your host, Sherry Simpson. During our time together, we'll stay close to the news and info you need to succeed as an HR pro. And together, we'll explore topics around HR thought leadership, compliance, and real life HR situations we face every day. Joining me on the podcast today is Jenny Jeep Johnson. She is a jack of all trades, master of many. She has a formal education in theater and a Juris Doctor and some continuing education certificates from Cornell. She has acted professionally. She's held public office. She's a public speaker. She's won sales awards. Jenny, thank you so much for jumping on with me. Thank you so much for having me. So, I want to set the stage for our audience by starting a little bit with your background as it relates to our discussion today. And our discussion today is really around multi-passionate neurodivergent individuals and how they're navigating the workplace. So let's start with this. When did you first think there might be something unique about the way that you see the world and work through it? Um, Well, first of all, let me say that the way that you just described being somebody like me is the kindest, most beautiful description. <laughs> um, or even the idea that I, uh, there was a point where I discovered that I might uh, move th- through the world differently than other people. Um, I think for me, and like many other people like me, um, I didn't suspect that there was something different about me. I suspected, or I knew, I felt my whole life, like there was something wrong with me, like, but not in terms of like a diagnosable thing. Like I'm a piece of poop. What is wrong with me? (laughs) Why can't I do things that are, you know, quote, simple things, um, that other grown adult people, or even, you know, even as a, as a young adult that, that I felt like I struggled with so much more than, than anybody else. Um, so for me, I actually, I don't think that I ever would have, um, really gone through the diagnostic process if my daughter hadn't been diagnosed at a very young age. Um, the long and short of it is that we were, she was diagnosed at three years old and which is a little bit on the younger side. And, and I naturally wanted to know how to parent her. We went to a parenting class and, um, they were sort of describing, um, how her world is. And, you know, can you imagine if you moved through the world experiencing these things? And I was like, yeah, like she's an alive human on the planet. And I remember like, my husband's head the world like that. <laughs> right. I, he, his head like snapped toward me and he was sort of shaking his head back and forth. Like, uh-oh, like, like it was really the first time anyone had put language to what I felt was like how just the world was, but was talking about it in terms of like, you know, you know, this level of dysregulation or these challenges, you know, imagine if you experienced these things. And I was like, but I do. <laughs> so <laughs> that was really what kind of led down my diagnostic path and to where I am now. So when you finally decided to have that conversation with the doctor, what did they diagnose you with and how did they go through that process? So my experience was I already had um, a very comfortable 
uh, I was already very comfortable with mental health and mental health support. And I was already seeing uh, a counselor. And so she made a recommendation to a psychiatrist who does the formal testing. And it was um, quite extensive. Over multiple days, there were any number of tests administered. Some of them what we think of more as like a IQ assessment. Others were verbal. Others were shapes and um, sounds and uh, word associations and things like that. And um, I melted that down day one test section two. I cried and I was like, is this normal? Is, you know? And um, and so needless to say, at the end of all that, he kind of, you know, puts everything he put everything through a hopper and sat down and kind of went through the analysis of what he saw. And um, that's when I learned, um, you know, you, I think a lot of us have like a very weird sense of humor about these things, because I remember him saying to me that there were certain segments of the tests where I tested, you know, in the top half of the top 1% of the population. And then we got to another section and he was trying to explain my score. And he said, you know, I, you, this was a little bit, you know, of a, str- can I ask, have you ever suffered a traumatic brain injury? Oh no. <laughs> and he didn't mean it judgmentally, but I felt like that moment sort of perfectly encapsulated my experience on this planet. I have always known that certain things come easily to me. I'm very comfortable with them. And even at some point you become aware that you're more comfortable with them than other people are. And then these other parts where it's not like I struggle, it's like my brain doesn't allow me to use it. Um, So we'll say things like, you know, that part of my brain is dead or, you know, um, nope, just not not happening. And, And so it was kind of validating to have somebody else see what I had always felt. Once you got your diagnosis and you knew you were down this road of, you know, ADHD, ADHD and the way you were wired and and your perspective in dealing with your daughter and how that how that kind of opened your eyes to the way you move through the world, how did that change how you approached work? Well, first of all, I would say, you know, growing up, you hear about kids with ADD, we called it ADD a lot more at that time. Um and I remember them asking how I felt as her parent when she got her diagnosis. And I remember saying, I don't feel anything because I don't actually know what that is. And so the first part of the journey for me was, was understanding what that meant, what executive function is, why that is so um, connected to, you know, what we hear people call adulting or, you know, organization or things that generally make you feel whether you're put together or a hot mess. And um, so that that was kind of the first part was learning what even it all is and then where it a lot where I kind of plugged into that. Um, as far as you know, having evolved through that, I would say now the way that it sort of intersects with the way I approach my work is that um, it, was a very, I don't know if freeing is the right word, but it it really allowed me to accept my strengths as actual strengths because that was the next step in the, if I was going to accept that the things that I struggled with 
or that just were not skills um, that I had as not being weaknesses, but rather a part, just a result of how I made. Um, and I think, you know, as, as women, but also, um, in the ADHD community. And then of course, with those bubbles overlap, um, we talk all the time about imposter syndrome. I'm sure you've had so many conversations about it. And I think for people with ADHD, um, it can be more that that idea of imposter syndrome can be more pronounced because you don't um, you're masking so much all the time to try to appear as somebody who isn't struggling with the things that we quote say are simple tasks. And I love my counselor because she said, you need to stop saying simple like you can't do simple things because they're not simple if they're not simple for you. And that really helped me understand. So needless to say, if I was going to accept that that wasn't, um, there was nothing wrong with me that my brain didn't want to do certain things or couldn't do certain things, then certainly the the next phase of that is accepting that um, the things I am good at aren't accidental, but true and real also as a result of how I'm made. And when I got to that point, it allowed me to be much more honest with um, my coworkers or my uh, the people who reported to me or environmental accommodations I felt that I needed um, because they were they lived in the realm of factual then and um, and became accommodations that could assist me instead of avoiding being put in a position. Um, where anyone would discover that I wasn't able to to do what I felt like should have been something anybody could do. How did you go about having that conversation with your, you know, your leadership and and for that for that matter, your direct reports on what does those what do those accommodations look like for you? Because your accommodations are going to be very unique compared to somebody else's in this space. I'm so glad that you said that because as with every single population, there's no such thing as a monolith. When we look at what accommodations people need, but also in terms of our ability to communicate them in the first place, just because you have, um, you know, a condition that puts you in the realm of neurodivergent doesn't magically mean that you're better than everybody else at self-assessment or presentation or communicating feelings around them, that is something that you have to want to develop as a person. Um, And communicating them can also be really challenging because you never stop being any of your other characteristics just because you're talking about neurodivergence. So when I approach, um, you know, a male superior, I don't suddenly, you know, shed any of the complications that come with, uh, you know, communicating with a male superior as a woman or, you know, for people, you know, everything's always so dynamically at play. So I just, it makes it tricky to be like, here's how you should do it. Cause I can only speak for what worked for me. Um, I would say that, um, I have approached this with sort of radical honesty and acceptance so I'm very comfortable saying things like, hey, I noticed that we have this um, task or this thing or this um, new policy that mandates that we all complete X task. Um, I am 
going to be honest with you, that's going to be a very difficult thing for me to do. So I usually try to come up with an alternate way of accomplishing the same goal that I can present and see um, whether that's acceptable. Um, But I've honestly been really surprised by how often it ends up sort of leading to um, an overview of why that thing is being implemented in the first place. Because if it's so alienating of somebody um, that speaks up about it, then it's kind of like how many other people might this be affecting? And then ultimately, what's the goal that we're trying to accomplish in the first place? So I'm always very willing to sit and talk about those things, but I do understand that I perform a huge amount of unpaid labor (laughs) um, in assisting with things that are not technically within my job description. So I think you just have to be honest with yourself about what you're willing to do um, in order to feel the way you want to feel. And it's certainly not anybody's responsibility to educate everybody on um, what these things are. But, you know, there are times where I choose to do that because it ultimately makes my job easier and I and my goals are aligned with the company's goals. And um, and then we it just is more seamless that way. When it comes to my direct reports, um, it's a little bit different in the situation that I'm in now because I don't have any direct reports. But previously I had a staff that worked for me and um, I was just as honest with them as um, I I would be with somebody I report to. And we really found ways for all of us to create like a little ecosystem because it turns out sometimes they struggled with some of those things, but somebody else found those things really, um, like scheduling, for instance, huge problem for me. So somebody else might um, really thrive in sort of that executive assistant role where um, those kind of tasks are very comforting and very simple for them. And then we were able to kind of accommodate one another. And both of us ended up in a position where we were thriving more than we would have before. And what a great way to open the door about inclusion. You know, sharing the conversation that you had with the supervisor about the task or the process and starting to kind of challenge those questions like, okay, well, why are why are we doing it this way? What is the goal we're trying to get to? Can it be done in a in a more seamless way or a more organic way for different people? It, what a great opportunity to to have those tougher conversations about the the broad definition of inclusivity and what that really means across different people. I want to switch gears just a tiny bit as we close out our conversation and, and just get your perspective on this. You know, we know that there's an Adderall shortage right now out there. And so there's a lot of amazing neurodivergent people who are struggling right now um, because they've had this resource that has helped them navigate their jobs, their families, those kinds of things in a different way. Um, And so they're having to cope. So for those people that might be listening that are in that space, um, what hope, what advice do you have for them as they kind of navigate until until that shortage is no longer a thing for us? Um, So if you weren't aware that there was an Adderall shortage before you listened to this, hearing me ramble through answers might uh, be the tip um, that that that's a problem. There's it's very difficult to be linear um, when you naturally are um, excited by various things that pop up within the course of a conversation. Um, So thank you for your patience on that. Uh, Second of all, I would say um, there are things that we know um, help our brains. The reason stimulants are so effective for people like me is because um, they provide a stability that my brain can't get to otherwise, which is why 
for someone like me, there's there's no such thing as, um, you know, a, a sort of um, hyperactivity that happens when you're taking, you know, methylphenidate. Um, it for me, it and for people like me, it actually has the opposite effect that you would expect. It's very calming. Um, when I was getting my dosage in order, sometimes it would actually make me fall asleep. Um, so it's very, it always cracks me up when they're like, you know, people just want to hop kids up on drugs. And I'm like, have you ever, have you ever seen what happens to a child or a person who doesn't have ADHD when you give them these drugs? No one would want that. (laughs) It would be chaos. Um, so look into why, um, these drugs, how these drugs work in the brain. And then there are ways that you can sort of artificially, hopefully temporarily help yourself with getting a hit of dopamine, same stuff that actually helps in a lot of different situations, getting outside, um, quick bursts of exercise, any of the things that, um, that can help give you a little jolt of those chemicals. A lot of people will find themselves snacking a lot more when they can't, um, get their medicine. And it's not, I mean, it can be an, an appetite suppressant, um, for some people, but, most often people end up not eating as much because they're not constantly looking for a way to get a hit of dopamine. Um, so maybe in this time, go ahead and snack away. I don't know, (laughs) get some chocolate. Um, and then just also just be really kind with yourself. I think for me, I being on the medicine feels like nothing to me. It's only in the absence of it that I've realized just how huge of a role it plays in helping me, um, focus. And, and I think that for people who have people working for them, and if they do see sort of a marked difference in their ability to make eye contact during conversations, or they're shifting in their chair or things like that, it might very well be because they just don't have access to the, some of the major tools that we use for this. So, um, it may be also affect mood, you know, you may have more anxiety, more depression, and, and that's all very normal, um, it's, it just might be an additional thing that you have to cope with. So, you know, we all just need to be a little, um, a little more patient with ourselves in these, in these times of no, of no stimulants. What a great way to end our conversation on kindness, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we all need to be kind to each other, but this has been a great conversation and opened my eyes up to some things that I need to think about as an HR practitioner is working with neurodivergent employees and the things that they might need or resources we might need to talk about so that we can open the door for them to feel comfortable to have those conversations. So Jenny, thanks for taking a few minutes of your day. I am so happy to have been here. Thank you so much. This podcast is brought to you by Paylocity, a leading HCM provider that frees you from the tasks of today so you can focus more on the promise of tomorrow. If you'd like to submit a topic or appear as a guest on a future episode, email us at pctytalks at paylocity.com.